ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. In 2015, Marina Berezina entered a classroom at a rich private school in Sydney. There were 25 students in that room who were there to be taught the ancient and sublime game of chess. Arena detected a sceptical mood in the classroom that day. She saw a lot of frowning and sniggering. I mean, what on earth could a woman teach these boys about chess? So she set up 25 chessboards in front of them and went from desk to desk, playing each one, and king after king was knocked over. And in no time, all 25 of them were beaten soundly. Arena Berezina grew up in Ukraine at a time when the old Soviet regime treated chess like an elite Olympic sport. She started playing at the age of four. And although her career was not the direct inspiration for the Netflix series Queen's Gambit, it might well have been. Arena played in championships all over the world. Several of her games were televised. And eventually she attained the title of International Chess Master. And along the way, she was directly caught up in not one, but two terrible international disasters. And speaking personally, I'm a lousy chess player, and I have always wanted to know how the mind of a master like Arena's is able to storm the castle and take the king. Hi, Arena. Hi, Richard. You grew up, like I said, in Kiev in Ukraine when it was part of the Soviet Union. How popular was chess when you were little? Ah, chess was totally amazing. I guess it was, um, ah, if you'll say football, not soccer there, or ice hockey or ice skating and chess were at the top. People thought, you know, it's not just physical, it's also mental. Um, my parents were very proud that uh, me and my brother both actually playing chess and it was very, very prestigious and very much supported even uh, though in those times, in former Soviet Union, they were saying that all sports are unprofessional. We all just, you know, just came from nowhere playing <laughs> either chess or football, and we're all achieving this amazing results. But there was a huge support from the government. So free education, free teachers, chess coaches. Was it part of the communist ideology too? It was like naturally communism produces these geniuses and it's, it's to be expected that under a Soviet regime you'd have these genius chess players popping up all over the place? Yeah, I, I guess so. Look, they always wanted to be better than Americans. Talking about Bobby Fischer was uh, really a no subject. I remember I was in sixth grade in school and I was uh, selected to represent country, Ukraine, in a former Soviet Union championship, which called Spartakiada. It was very prestigious. And we were actually invited to the TV station. And uh, I was very relaxed about that, and I was very happy that my grandparents and parents will see me on a really on the TV. And I was asked a question: So, who is the best chess player, and to whom you are looking up? And I actually said Bobby Fischer. When uh, <laughs> the coach went pale, and when I walked outside, they said, "What?" Did you do? What you were you... supposed to say Boris Spassky, weren't you? Uh, I, I should have said something. Probably I should have said um, Anatoly Karpov, ah, yes. who was born in the same place where my father was born or something like that. But I was very honest. And my grandparents and parents taught me to be honest. And I said it and it was like, seriously, what's going to happen now? So you started playing, like I said, at the age of four. Do you remember how you were first introduced to the chessboard? Uh, Yep. It was uh, Khrushchev's apartment. It's hard to picture it. Uh, my brother, five years older than me, he's getting a birthday present, a beautiful gift chest. It's very plastic, but it was so beautifully done, like a face of the queen, a face of the king, a pawn, a little soldiers which are kneeling down. Everything was so gorgeous. And my father knew how to play chess, like most of the people back there, you know, in former Soviet Union. And he was literally teaching my brother, you know, like, this is a king, this is a 
queen, the way they can move. And I was running around with the toys, just a few. We didn't have many toys those days. And um, no one taught me, but I was listening while I was running around. And it just one day I interfere and I start saying, and my father said, no, no, just go. What do you know? And I said, no, no, I listened to what you were saying. I remember everything you said. And I start basically showing and he was very impressed. And then one day my grandparents took my brother to the chess school after school and next door it was dancing and they took me to dancing and then I walked in because I was waiting for my brother and I actually start answering on a question and the chess coach <laughs> said who are you just come here then he told my parents no more dancing no more anything she's going to be my student and now she's in this class with the, all the kids she's going to be here believe it or not my chess coach, who is now 87, is in Sydney. Uh, and it's it's very beautiful to talk to him and see him. And he's still teaching. And how was he with you, uh, teaching you as a little girl? Mm, he had a son, similar age with me. And uh, it's kind of felt like, you know, nearly like my... Uh, like a father, you know, like he was so gentle and sweet. But at the same time, this chess school was really good. The teachers were, they knew what they wanted to do. They loved it, what they were doing. They, you can't teach if you don't love what you're doing. I think from grade six in school, I actually set my mind that I'm going to be a teacher. I actually want to be a science or physics teacher. But then, you know, like my kind of chess career overtook all that. But I always knew that's what I want to do. I want to be a teacher. So were you thinking about chess all the time? And the reason I ask is that I, I read uh, a biography of Bobby Fischer. And when he was a little boy, he was constantly thinking about chess, yes. constantly drawing chess diagrams, constantly thinking about it with a book all the time. Was that Were you like that as well? No. No, I think, you know, people like Bobby Fischer are not born every day. No, he's crazy uh, too. Like, he's, yes. he was crazy as hell. And I think I'm yeah. kind of more down-to-earth person. I had to make quite a few choices in my career, what I want to do. And I always, you know, like I knew that I want to have a normal family. I want to have children. I want to, you know, I want to have the other part of the life. But happiness. what about when you were little, though, when you were that young, when you were like, when you were starting um, out? If you would ask me, say, 20 years ago, 25, 30 years ago, I would say probably the answer would be different. But looking back and chess players' mind, always analyzing. So I think I was, for me as a child, was, oh, wow, everyone fascinated. My parents are, you know, so happy. I put a smile, my mom waiting. You know, I'm traveling to chess competition. Every day I would call and my mom said, the first question, how did you go? I won. Oh my God, you're so smart! Oh, oh so you were you were driven by the fact you were making so many people I happy? I guess. I guess. Look, it definitely wasn't my blood. I definitely loved it. It's definitely made me fascinated. You cannot play, you know, or do something if you don't love it. It doesn't matter what you do. It doesn't matter what kind of sport. But it also was a very healthy competition with my brother, and uh, we love each other dearly. My brother was born a genius, closer to Bobby Fischer, genius. If I can't play one game with my eyes closed, he could play five. If I can't play 25, yeah, with the eyes Sorry, closed. Sorry, did you just say play a game with your eyes closed? I can play a game with my eyes closed. That's what I do with my student. What age could you start playing with your eyes closed? We were traveling on a chess competition, usually by trains, long trains, overnight. At night, coaches would say, now go to sleep. You're not allowed to do anything. No, you know, card games, uh, no chess, nothing. So we played uh, blindfolded at night. And uh, I can see a chess board. I don't need to see a chess board. What do you mean you're playing me? blindfolded at night? Do you mean you're lying in bed yeah, you're and lying talking, in bed. talking a chess game? Chess, yeah. I played move D2, D4. I played move knight G8 to F6 and we're following the game and it was just for fun. We my enjoyed. God, Arena, how can you possibly do that? <laughs> uh, you can ask my students. I just did it uh, two weeks ago with one of my students on a lesson, just, you know, like showing her that I can do it. I also teaching kids how they can do it. Are you saying it's not that hard? No. It's not it's, that hard? It's training. It's training. It's good for everyone. It's good to make your brain work better. It wakes up your brain. <laughs> All right, let me ask a question. This might be a silly question, but do you play chess better when you're blindfolded or in the dark? 
I have to admit, it's easier for me to do it with my eyes closed because uh, it's just oh my, my nature. <laughs> I'm getting distracted by things around. I kind of learned to use my chess skills on everyday basis. I remember where things are. I need to be really well organized. And people are different. Some people are hectic and disorganized. And I use what I know in chess. It's been really interesting studies that our part of the brain, which play in chess, it's everyday part of the brain. So just hypothetically, you'll put a chessboard with any position in front of me right now, and you'll tell me you have three seconds to look at, close your eyes and repeat what's on the board. I'll repeat. You can do that. I can do that. But but but, but and you can play better. You're saying you can sometimes play better. I can in the dark play better because there's no distraction. I can play with my eyes closed and look at something. Let's say at plain wall. I guess lots of people can do it with eyes open. It's better for them. I'm getting distracted by things outside. So hypothetically, let's say I'm moving into any supermarket. You give me five minutes to walk around Woolworths and you'll say, okay, and now you're a sales assistant. Where these things are? I promise to you I'm going to do it like I worked in the shop for a long time. Right, and it's a similar uh, technique you use to memorise a board. And do you have a system for that? Since you can do it in three seconds, do you look like for snake-like patterns between the pieces or is it colour or what mnemonic tricks do you have to okay. memorise it? If you'll give me chess position, which is totally random and unrealistic, it cannot happen on a chess board in a real life, I'm not good. <laughs> I need to follow the logic. If I look at the position and it's actually from... Chess variations are impossible, you know, like positions, it's millions of them. But if you give me a random position, which is logically could happen on a board, I memorize much better than if you give me random. If I'm teaching someone, I'm trying to teach them basically going king, queen, rooks, knight, bishop, pawns. You put a structure in every one person and usually kids and adults can learn quicker if you kind of give, not like, you know, a strict structure, but some structure. Okay. So is it like a story you can remember? Is it, because I'm, as you're telling me this, I'm thinking I can watch a movie and I know what various different kinds of stories are. And you can watch a movie and you can see it unfold and you go, oh, this is going to be a romantic comedy or this is going to be that kind of a story where someone jumps out of a car. And, and, and you, just, you, you just know what kind of story it is just by looking at how it's positioning itself. Is it like Absolutely. that or is that, no, is that too far Absolutely. Every game, you know, like <laughs> I, I've, I've always been very competitive. I've always been actually a player. But now I start enjoying the other part of chess, the beauty. You know, so for me, it's a story of the game. It's psychologically, you look in the other person, you see their eyes. You, you literally know what the other person is going to do. After you play half of the game, you start kind of feeling like this person. What they're going to do? Are they nervous? Even if they'll pretend, you know, like you start reading the facial emotions, how, you know, what, what they do. And it, it's this uh, feeling is nearly transferable. So chess is, chess is not as simple as it sounds. It's like a little life you are playing every time. Irina, how old were you when you became the Ukrainian champion? I was four times uh, champion of Ukraine. So if you count back um, when I finished school, it's where 10 years. So year 10, year 9, year 8 and 7. So uh <laughs> Look, I I don't want to sound kind of, you know, like... Well, you were 13 or 12 or something or when you became Ukrainian champion. Yeah, so I finished school at the age of... So if I started at 7 plus 10 years, so I finished at the age of 17. So, and first time I became a champion of Ukraine out of blue... And it was a big surprise to everyone. It was after studying this Bobby Fischer book. I, <laughs> I, I have to admit... I put lots of work. I really, really wanted. I really loved it. I really wanted to achieve. I put lots of work into that. I wouldn't go, you know, like um, for a walk or I wouldn't, you know, go and have fun. I would really, really say, okay, tomorrow I'm playing. I need to go to bed 9.30. So it's like a I boxing need... match. It's like preparing for a boxing match. Yes. And then I would have my kind of routine when I'm getting nervous, you know, like I would uh, come early and I would walk a little bit and try to calm and control my nerves and uh, 
I, I guess I'm lucky that uh, I was trained to have this ability. So after school, you went into a special kind of chess academy with students. What was life like when you were um, in that in that chess academy? No, I, I actually, after I finished school, I uh, went to University of Physical Education and Culture and I studied, I became a PE teacher in Kyiv. But when I was finishing school, I was invited to a very prestigious uh, academy with a uh, world champion number nine, Tigran Petrosyan from Armenia. And uh, he was a crazy influence on me. How so? First of all, for me, it was like, say, uh, literally a star came down, you know, like someone, you know, like I never thought I would meet so close up a world champion who was actually one of the best defender in the chess game in his life. In the time, it's interesting, he was 56. I thought, oh my God, he's so old. He's so old. <laughs> he, he already done everything in his, his life. But I was lucky because Tigran Petrosyan actually stayed there and we were doing chess coaching twice a day. You mentioned that you were a physical education teacher for a while. And when you said that, I remember that Bobby Fischer in training for his match with Boris Spassky, did uh, lifted weights, exercised heavily, did all this running. Is it a physically demanding game rather than uh, more than just mentally taxing? Is it physically taxing? It's it's really really physical and. And how can that be, Irina? Because you're just sitting still and oh, thinking. Aren't you, you know a famous story. It was a very I, I don't remember a name. It was a guy who was amazing in boxing, and he played uh, five or six hours game, and he actually was so tired he <laughs> fallen off the chair. <laughs> and you know, like it's yeah. actually physically so draining. I have to admit I'm guilty of underestimating this part in my. Um, childhood and being a teenager, I thought, uh, um, that's fine. You know, when you're young, you think, okay, I'm strong. It doesn't matter. I can do whatever I wanted to do. And uh, I wasn't physically strong uh, those days. And I think my results would have been much better if I would have been physically strong. I realized uh, all that stuff, I think, when I came to Australia. I also think that at some stage when I was representing Australia at Chess Olympiad and I could see other team members being an age of my son, I thought, okay, now I have to compensate. It has to be the other part of me which needs to be stronger. So my brain needs to work. After five hours, my brain still needs, and tomorrow I'm still physically ready for the game. And I won't say... Uh, look, it's not a secret, like in, in a team, it's always reserved. And especially in women's chess, it sometimes happens. Oh, oh, team's meeting. I'm sorry, guys. I feel so tired. I really can't play tomorrow. And my uh, upbringing and my former Soviet Union and Ukrainian, you cannot say to coach, my answer to coach, are you ready to play tomorrow? Absolutely. Tomorrow in Norway, for example, in Chess Olympian, tomorrow we are playing Ukrainians. Are you ready to play against Ukrainian team? So you need to be physically fit in order you to do that. You have to be physically fit. You, you can't say, you know, your mental health goes together with your physical. And is it true you can lose a bunch of weight while you're playing <laughs> chess championships? Yes, it's a good part. Uh, my last chess Olympian. It's, it's true? It's true? Absolutely. Really? Absolutely. Absolutely. You're burning so much. You, you're giving so much energy during the game. You're giving so much, you know, so you actually, you know, okay, you can't compare probably with a tennis player, but uh, you, you don't have to deprive yourself of carbs. Or right, soup. so you can have chocolate. Chocolates chocolates on the, on ah, the menu. That's what my it? grandparents did, unfortunately, <laughs> <laughs> and my parents. Now, it was through professional chess that you met your husband, Vladimir. Tell me how you met him. I was uh, I was fairly young. I always wanted to have uh, lots of lots of kids. I always dreamt that we are going to have lots of kids, and I went on a chess competition, which Vladimir, my husband, was um, arbiter. And strangely enough, I didn't want to go. I was very sad. I just, you know, lost my grandma who raised me. And uh, I went there and I was introduced uh, to Vladimir by one of the coaches from Kiev. 
and we start dating and uh, about a year later we got married but um, our wedding was supposed to be on Saturday when uh, relatives and friends could come you know like we weren't uh, coming from rich background it was just basically moving furniture out of one room putting lots of and you know 40 45 uh, people could fit in and uh, everyone would uh, prepare something and buy stuff and um I played really well for a Spartak team. It was a club and I was very lucky. One of a very famous grandmaster from Georgia, she pulled out of the team in the last minute. I was supposed to represent as a girls team under 20 and they put me on a women's team. And I literally uh, went to the registry and I wrote, I would like to change my uh, uh, registration of our marriage from Saturday to Wednesday. Why? So on Thursday, I could fly to championship of Ukraine. Uh, and on my honeymoon... Uh, sorry, so the championship was on the same day as your wedding? Uh, yeah, it was clashing. So I had to start playing on Thursday and I had to leave on that day. I just changed and lots of uh, our friends and family were upset and we had a, a very small dinner at home. Next day we left and then uh, about 12 days later I became a chess master, which I wanted to be. I wanted to be a chess master and it's literally, I know it sounds crazy. It sounds like who would give up a wedding for a chess competition? <laughs> So you rescheduled the wedding. And so was it a happy time for you then to be at that moment? And is being happier, does that make you play better, I wonder? I guess um, you have to find a healthy, you know, like people say, being in a zone. I guess uh, being happy and just got married took uh, a little bit pressure off me. And I guess being happier, um, I guess it's helped because I achieved what I wanted to achieve. You became a chess master. Yeah, the dream a woman's of a, chess a master. A woman's chess master. Chess master of former Soviet Union. So you were married uh, and you had a, a lovely little boy and you're living in Ukraine. What were living conditions like in those days? <laughs> Uh, we lived in uh, the same apartment uh, where I got married and where my parents uh, moved uh, in 1960. And literally in one room where my parents, then a room through which everyone would go through uh, was my grandfather and my older brother and another room which had a balcony we had to remove a table and uh, on the sofa we were living so and uh, seven people was, in a two-room apartment oh yeah very happy wow. family yeah. yep <laughs> okay then in 1986 not long after your son was born the nuclear reactor at nearby chernobyl exploded how close were you to the reactor when it exploded? Yeah, so Kiev is uh, about 150 km. We also knew this place really well because we used to go with my grandparents to spend summer holidays there. And how did you hear that something had happened there? Mm, we had a call in the middle of the night from a neighbour saying, grab your child. My son was 11 months old. Grab your son, go to the train station, uh, airport, and just go. And could you? Could you go? Uh, we didn't have, uh, we couldn't go anywhere. How would you go? Uh, you had to have a place, you know, where you live, where you work. And uh, we literally lived from uh, getting, uh, you know, monthly paid working and, uh, you know, like, where would you go? So at some stage we actually went, I went with uh, um, my son, Alex, for 20 days to Moscow and stayed with uh, Vladimir's relatives. And then I came back because uh, we, had, we had no other means, you know, to live on, you know, like, so we had to come back. So you're quite close, Kiev is quite close to Chernobyl. But after... The reactor core exploded. In Germany and Sweden, they were telling children they couldn't play outdoors. And you're right next door to it. Were people around you getting sick? 
Yeah, so look, when it happened on 26th, on the 1st of May, it was a big, you know, celebration and they people going to demonstration. And uh, unfortunately, you know, Ukrainian government and former Soviet Union government, they were encouraging us to go. But we were trying to be careful. A couple of weeks later, when the clouds went to us and it became more public, we were advised to close all windows, balconies, and when you're going outside, come back home, have a shower, wash floors, the carpet, everything, whatever you can wash it every day. Stay inside as much as possible. Don't go anywhere. Um, then, you know, you, we start seeing people who were fire, you know, fire brigades who went there when, you know, like, and they start getting sick. It was really scary when you know someone who is just suddenly, you know, and it's fair fairly young people, you know, middle-aged uh, men coming back and then they sick and then it's so strange and then people are dying and no one really telling you what exactly is happening. Then um, we were really concerned that our son is often sick and we didn't know why and, you know, it's all the thoughts start coming to your head and, you know, what shall we do? what's our next stage, you know, what what shall we do? So we wanted to go somewhere, and it's not many countries which would accept immigrants. And so this was a factor in you wanting to migrate? It was a big fact. It was one of the biggest facts. It was even living in a really not easy conditions. Um, we dearly love everyone. I couldn't imagine, you know, like breaking my parents' heart to go. My grandfather was still alive when it happened. So leaving my grandfather, who was 87 then, and, um, you know, like leaving all, all this part, you know, also being... Um, look, I was twice a champion of former Soviet Union. I was a champion of Ukraine four times. I was kind of, kind of privileged person who achieved a lot in that country, going somewhere where it's totally unknown, busy young child and making a decision to be apart from, uh, you know, my brother, as I told you before, we never had one single fight in our life. So it, it's, it's not an easy decision and uh, immigration is not an easy decision. Podcast and broadcast. This is Conversations with Richard Feibler. You can find more Conversations anytime on the ABC Listen app. Or go to abc.net.au slash conversations. What was the process, though, like of migrating to Australia in those days? The process was quite unpleasant because, <laughs> first of all, it's not many countries which will accept us. Uh, second, the former Soviet Union would treat extremely badly people who would decide to leave the country. We were kind of traitors. We don't love our country. And I guess every normal human being understands you do love your country, you born there. You, but the you bastards have... who are running it are something else, aren't they? <laughs> yeah, yeah, so you, you <laughs> had to give up your job, you had to give up a lot, and the most important, you had to give up um, a place where you grew up, where you have a family who loves you so much. And you're also a, a national figure too. You're, you're someone who is respected and regarded for, as a yeah. chess master. And I have to admit, I worked hard in chess, but I didn't have to work hard because I was a privileged, you know, like chess player. They wanted me to go and uh, play for the teams and achieve results and do well. And so you wanted to migrate to Australia. But how are things on the Australian end of things? How helpful were, <laughs> were our lot? We, uh, we applied in 1991 and it was very clear reason. My, my parents were quite unhappy about it. but So you applied when the Soviet Union collapsed or had it was it applied, about to collapse? We, we applied in 1991. We received uh, a permission to go to Australia on the day of Putsch 1992 in Moscow. My husband was in Moscow and he called me and he said, tanks on the street. 
He came to the Moscow on a day, so we got permission on a day when we didn't know where is uh, Gorbachev is, and it was a scary moment. Kiev was a close type of a city, capital city, where if I basically decided to give up, you know, like that I'm living in Kiev and going to another smaller city or something, I couldn't really get back to the Kiev and live there and work there. So... Uh, strangely enough, we had to go, we had to fill the forms, lots of lots of forms, and then we had to do x-ray for Australia to prove it that we are healthy, young people with the education. And apparently my x-ray was, uh, strangely enough, lost five times. Lost? Lost in Australian embassy in Moscow five times. And on the fifth time... Lost five times? And on the fifth time, I decided <laughs> that... Uh, it's not meant to be. Mm. It's not meant to be. So I thought, okay, another X-ray. I already had enough radiation living next to, you know, like, it's, uh, uh, thank you. I, I'm not doing another X-ray. You survived Chernobyl. So, Can you survive the Australian X-ray process? So, uh, I said, I said to my, uh, I, I said to my husband and my mother-in-law who wanted to go together with us that, you know, like, it's probably not meant to be. And I'm sorry. I'm kind of a stopped to the story and I totally understand it's everyone's choice you know like if you want to go you go but I, I, I can't pass the test you know like my x-ray is somewhere and then one day it's just out of blue I even remember I was just playing with my son and then a phone call I pick up phone and they say hi it's from Moscow we're from Australian Embassy we just actually figure out we find your paperwork and you actually pass the test and you can go. But there is a catch. Uh, your mother-in-law, as you're not close blood relative, cannot go with you straight away. She has to stay behind. But you and your husband and your son can go. But uh, there is another catch. Because it's been such a long process. If you won't manage to come to Australia, I think it was by the 4th of January, before 4th of January 1992, you have to reapply. And we're already out of work. So we're it's already... like, wait and wait and you wait have, and you wait have to and go wait. Now. And then go now, 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 now. Yeah, right, and you have right. to go now. Right. And it's a cue to get out of the country as well as to get into Australia. So we got permission, but we had to get second permission to get okay. out of the former Soviet Union. All right. So, so then you get on a plane. You, your husband and your son, you get <laughs> on a plane and you fly to Australia where did you end up in Australia? Where did you fly to? We flew through Singapore to Sydney. We had to borrow money for the tickets to come to Australia. So we came basically, hello, here we are. We don't have any money at all. And where did you land in Sydney? Uh, at Bondi. <laughs> you landed Bondi? Yes. And what did Bondi look like to, to three people from Ukraine? It's gorgeous. Mm. It's gorgeous. It was it was really hot first time. You know, you probably never forget when you're in Moscow airport and you once more, you turn your head and you're looking at your family and once more. But it was, it was always beautiful. It was like, you know, it wasn't home to me straight away. It wasn't like I am at home now. It was a strange place where... Semi-naked uh, people are walking around all the time. Wearing songs or wearing uh, barefooted. It wasn't something you would do in Ukraine. Um, I, I mean, it's a beautiful place. It's uh, Who can say that Sydney is not a beautiful city? It, it just, it's not truth. So what kind of work did you and Vladimir find when you arrived? Uh, when we arrived, uh, we did go to the chess club at Bondi. Uh, we were looking for any kind of job. Mentally, it was totally impossible for us to be called unemployed. I worked since I was, I don't know, 14, 15. I always worked. I, I don't know how not to work. You, you were telling me on the way in there was actually illegal not to work in the yes, Old Soviet yeah, Union. Yeah, yes. yeah, yeah. So our first job, Vladimir, was uh, a delivery uh, guy for the bread and cakes. And I worked at uh, Best and Less. I worked in uh, another shop at wow. uh, Old Southhead Road. I've learned, I, I also thought how <laughs> how spoiled I am by my grandparents and parents. And, you know, like I wasn't really prepared for physically hard work in one shop and then running to another shop doing a late night shift. In the same time, they were trying to give chess lessons and, and organize a chess club. And I started playing a little bit and... 
I, I guess it's a really, really strange time. It would have been hard. It would have been very hard for you, surely. It was hard. But, you know, when I'm looking at that, you can look at everything two ways. You know, it makes you a little bit different person. It can make you kind of um, angry or it can make you more appreciative of other stuff and other people who are doing that. I also remember one day in the shop, uh, the owner of the shop told me, oh, here's this 80 kilo box. You are Ukrainian. You are strong. You can do it. And I couldn't leave this box. I didn't know. My grandparents never would let me. Oh, you are a girl. You, you know, like, you know, you're a princess. Mm. You can't carry the heavy boxes. <laughs> and so you were, able to, were you able to get your parents to Australia after yeah, that so, as well? Uh, a couple of years later, we gave sponsorship and my mother-in-law arrived and she lived with us in the rented apartment at Bondi. And uh, I know for lots of people living in Australia, living with the parents-in-law parents, it sounds <sighs> terrible. <laughs> and I guess it's not the easiest times. And then uh, my mom became uh, sick with cancer and we were absolutely 100% honest. I applied for sponsorship for my parents and we told Australian embassy absolutely every single history about that, you know, mom will need treatment here. And financially it was tough, but it was uh, absolutely amazing for my son to be reunited. We've got a crazy recording which we saved it, how my son send a voice message to my parents saying, please, please, I'm praying every day to God that you'll come to Australia. I miss you so, so much. And I'm going to teach you English and you're going to speak properly and you're going to see this beautiful country we are living in. And uh, he loves them, you know, he loves them so dearly, you know, and until the end of the life of my parents, he was kissing my mom's hair and, you know, like it was... It, it was beautiful. You can't, you know, you can't put a price on that. So meanwhile, your chess career in Australia is taking off. You're doing extremely well playing chess for Australia now, which is a great thing for Australia. And then we get to 1997 and you were asked to represent Australia at the Maccabee Games in Israel. How excited were you to be oh, in this it was. It was amazing. Look, everything suddenly... I was falling into the same place. I'm a champion of Australia, women champion of Australia. I'm winning every single competition. I was so happy and proud. Like, I mean, finally, Australia became my home, my real home. It actually was inside of my heart now. And, you know, it's something I understood that it's, you know, like now I'm actually traveling back home. To Australia. To yes. Australia, to Sydney. That's my home. So you were asked to take part in these games, and this brings us to the second great catastrophe that, that you were caught up in, Arena. What, what do you remember of the opening ceremony for the Maccabee Games <clears throat> in that year? Yeah, so look, prior to that, we had a beautiful week of travelling around Israel with the team, and then uh, we were super excited. It was something uh, totally unusual for us, you know, being wearing this beautiful... Golden green uniform, bandanas, this beautiful hat. We had this, you know, special for opening ceremony. I was very preoccupied correcting, putting nicely bandanas on all Australian team members. And I've never been to anything like that. And we were absolutely happy. And then uh, we nearly missed the bus because my husband was stuck in a lift. And in the last minute, we were told we're allowed to take a camera to the opening ceremony. And then we arrived. It was very hectic, uh, noisy. I had no idea that I didn't know we were on a bridge. You were you were in part of like a procession, were you? Was yeah, that so what it we was? were supposed to march. Uh, so they basically told us to stay, uh, you know, they formed the team. And Australia was one of the, like, I think it was Austria and then Australia. And, you know, we had a flag. We were super excited. We were in the middle row, two people on our right, left side, two people on our right side. Me and Vladimir, he's on my left side and we in the middle. 
And it was so hectic that I had no idea that it's actually a river and we need to cross a bridge. I just knew that we are going to the stadium, we are going to march. In my head, it was literally pictures of Olympic Games. So you, in and your mind you were going about to go into a stadium. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We but, were, you, but you had to cross that bridge first. I didn't know it's a bridge. We didn't know anything about it. No so, one told us it's a little bridge we had to cross. No one told us it's a river underneath. We didn't know anything about it. So what... When did you know something was wrong? <laughs> we knew when it's happened. So we basically are staying and they saying, okay, now we are going. And this boy, you know, who carrying was, you know, carrying our flag. And we start moving. And suddenly it felt like ah, I just had one scream and something and I'm falling down somewhere. I'm just falling down. It was the bridge was about the height of the third floor of normal apartments. It was like three stories up over three the river. Story. And it just collapsed. And just went inside. I didn't hear people screaming or separate scream. I just had one scream. And the next thing I feel I'm underwater. Uh, something falling on the top of me and my chest-trained brain feels, you know, that I'm trapped, I'm in the water, I, my husband's somewhere near me, and I have to admit it's strange, but it's total truth. I thought, that's it? Is it the end of my life? Is it how it's going to end? And my son, my son, my family back in Australia, how could it happen? It's, it's can't. And I, I, I guess it's where, I guess it's all happened on the minute, you know, like if you look at that. And what, what was the river like that you, the bridge had collapsed the river into? river was very shallow, very polluted. It's where some very unusual meningitis, which happened in the world just a few times, and doctors didn't know how to treat it. And were you were you ingesting that water? Were you? What's happened? Uh, it's where people who built the bridge they used rusted pipes, and two of those pipes uh, actually my ankle was trapped there. Um, strangely enough, doctor said that if I would be the person who'll say. Okay, goodbye, I'm going. I wouldn't break that badly my foot and ankle and everything because I actually was struggling to free myself. So your ankle was trapped in one of the pipes? My ankle, two pipes were basically squashed my ankle. And was your head underwater? My head underwater and people are falling on the top of my water and then I basically lost conscious. There you were trapped with the pipes and you're in this filthy water do you remember getting out of there or did you run I wouldn't ever get out out of water by myself. So my next recollection, I'm somewhere and someone, believe it or not, in Israel, screaming in perfect Russian, do you remember who you are? Do you remember your name? Do you know who you are? Answer it, answer it, say who you are. Um, I didn't know anything. I didn't see anything. I was, I, I had the... Uh, for this time, I was uh, uh, lack of oxygen made me basically blind, so I didn't I didn't see anything. I I just had a voice, and then I had the voice of my husband, and someone again kept on screaming, just just answer it who you are, just do you remember who you are, uh, and saying in Russian. So then uh, next thing, I was taken to the hospital. And they didn't realize that I basically they took my husband somewhere and he had some stuff, you know, they start looking at the people. And um, because I kind of I I still couldn't see anything, but I regained consciousness and it's where other people to whom they had to attend, I guess, more. And uh, we were all very lucky, lucky who survived because uh, because they were scared of terrorist attack and uh, Ambulances were on standby. Army was on standby. Army basically put uh, the army where knew how to get people quickly out of water. They were passing people. So someone did CPR on the water to me. If you if you look at 1997, this day, uh, 14th or 15th of July, uh, Sydney Morning Herald on the first page, it was a picture and no one knew who that. But one day I looked at this picture and I saw my uh, my watch. 
So the person on the first page of Sydney Morning Herald who is lying down looks like dead and dirty, it was me. So when you were in hospital, what state was your leg in? Uh, the leg was uh, basically, uh, my husband said it was, uh, it was turn 180 degrees. Were you in danger of having it amputated? Yes. Yes, but, you know, the trouble was that uh, they didn't take water straight away out of my lungs. They didn't know that I got lungs filled with this water, which basically x-ray showed so my lungs still until now looks like uh, I've been inhaled some poison, a lots of poison. And uh, I was in intensive care. I also knew that um, people on the left and right side of our row died. I was, in this time, being in intensive care, I, I probably did realize, you know, like that it could be end. You know, when a doctor comes, you're in intensive care, you know that the people are dying. You can't breathe on your own, you're on oxygen. I had holes in my, you know, like chest and, you know, like tube and all the stuff and you can't breathe on your own and you don't feel good. You don't think about leg. So you're in pain, but you're not allowed painkillers. And then when doctors saying uh, the, you know, airline giving tickets, whom do you want to see to say goodbye? And uh, your husband walks in in intensive care and saying, our son is on the way to airport. He wants to fly. It's not, you know, like you do understand. I mean, I was only 33 years old. It's not like, you know, I, I, I don't know. You, you'd never want to die. You know, you never think that probably what's my chances, you know, like, will I survive or not? So were they able to save your leg or your ankle? Uh, so it was uh, 17 days. They didn't know what to do because basically people who swallowed water and people whose water was taken quicker out, they start recovering. People who swallowed water uh, basically um, start dying because uh, kidney and other, you know, part of the body just stopped working and they didn't know what to do. And doctor was saying, look, guys, we don't know what to do. And what's the point of operating on a leg? By the way, we can't give you anesthetic anyway. We can't put you asleep because you never will wake up. And uh, I I can't believe it now that in my mind, I thought, okay, look, if I'll uh, lose a leg, okay, I want to leave. I do want to leave. And then they decided on 17th day, they were saying that it's uh, basically, I probably most likely will lose a leg. And um, they decided, they started giving enormous dose of steroids and it started working. And they said, look, we can give, try to do and put your leg together somehow, but unfortunately you cannot have general anesthetic. And uh, you you can't. You just won't take it. You never will wake up. So could you have no painkillers? To- uh, so they gave me they gave me epidural. Oh, an epidural in the spine. They gave me epidural, and then uh, operation was around four hours. It wasn't funny because I and was, you were awake the whole time. I was awake, and I saw. I remember my thoughts. I saw the face of this. Uh, guy who was operating on me and, you know, like it's dropping on his forehead and you only see it in movie. You know how they... Right, he's, got, he's sweating and he's like patting he's his forehead. He's right. sweating and they're patting uh. his forehead and I'm in strange pain. I don't understand what is happening and I can hear how they, you know, like... Uh, I, I understand it's going in my leg and it's kind of, you know, like very uncomfortable and I'm like... They, they, were, they were totally amazing. You know, the guy who gave me epidural, he was holding my hand and he said, it's okay, another half an hour, another 40 minutes, another something, another something, you know, like, I actually think that training in sport or anything you do is good because it helps you when it's difficult. Uh, at some stage, you know, like when I was uh, in Sydney and I, I had another surgery and I used to play chess every Monday night at Bondi Club. <laughs> and uh, my husband left me at home and I was supposed to, you know, like not to walk. And I just put normal clothes on and I slowly walked into the club and I said, no, I'm playing tonight. I'm fine. I'm good. You know, like, but look, uh, it's, um, it's, it's not an easy ride. How does an experience like that change you? Or doesn't it change you? I don't know. Are you still the same person or are you a different person now? It does. It does change you. It does change not just you. It's changed your family. It's uh, changed your children. It did change my son. It's where lots of 
amazing people who didn't want a credit, who didn't want to uh, someone say, thank you, you are amazing, you did that. That's why people who knew that my parents are and my son is, you know, in Sydney and I was second last Australian to arrive back to Australia. And um, they were bringing shopping, they were buying toys for my son, they were trying to be there, really be there. So, so you, you received a lot of kindness then, is that what you're saying? Definitely. And does that make give you a different view of human nature then, does it? Yes, and it's as bad as it sounds, and I wish it's never happened to me. Did it make my son a different person? I guess it did. It's made him, I guess, stronger. It's also showed to him kindness and that you have to be no matter what. You have to be a normal human being. It has to be inside of you no matter what's happening outside, you know? Like, I mean, we all experience some other stuff which probably unfair or something else. He wanted to get into good school and he studied a lot and he wanted to achieve what he wanted to achieve. I so, guess so you think it made him more serious then? He was such a young boy to experience. It's, it's, again, it's not fair for the kid to go through that. And just imagine we were in Sydney and one night, uh, like Vladimir had just a flu and literally... Doctors were saying, if you get a flu, you'll die because your lungs still not strong enough. You still can't really breathe. You can't still, you know, you can't really, you have to be so careful, you know, like with what's happening around you. I mentioned that right at the start, the story of you going to teach those boys in that private school, that elite private school. They thought, oh, what can a woman teach us? You played all 25 of them simultaneously <laughs> and beat every one of them. How do you do that, Arena? How is that even possible to play 25 games of chess simultaneously and win every one? It could be even 50. Look, I can't guarantee I'll win everyone. I have to admit it's concentration and it's training and it's experience. I'm not saying it's easy. I do put lots of work. Whatever you do, I do concentrate a lot. I do keep in my head. Moreover, if you'll ask me what is happening on the board number one or two, I do remember. So you in do? my head, of course I do. Right. So, so you, you can be on board number 15. And I do remember my thoughts. Yeah, what's, what's there. And if someone by mm. accident will take one piece away, and check it out, my memory, I will remember. <laughs> so I, they can't I, cheat. I had these experiences in my <laughs> life. They wanted to check on me and I would remember my piece was there. It's, it's again, it's training. It's, uh, it's easier to train from childhood, but it's possible to train anyone. <laughs> How has your relationship with chess changed in the course of your life from that girl, that little girl who started playing, mm. who, who pushed her way into chess class? I strangely enough, if if you look at what's happening now, I love chess more than ever. <laughs> and I love chess totally different way. Before it was giving me, besides pleasure and enjoyment, it's where results, it was traveling um, through COVID. I start actually enjoying other parts of chess and watching more. And it's also became so beautifully visual. And um, strangely enough, after what's happened in Israel, I became a different chess player as well. I had this good former Soviet Union school where they teach you good basics and everything. But after this, what's happened in 1999 and I started playing again, I became more relaxed, more active chess player. I didn't want to draw. I wanted to go for it. I wanted to enjoy. And I, my thoughts literally were who cares if I lose? I'm alive. Sun is beautiful. Sky is beautiful. Ocean is beautiful. Guess what? I can have a shower by myself and I can walk again. And life is so beautiful. So who cares? So in 1999, I actually became international chess master man. And it was like, wow. And you know, like I felt like a different chess player. Before that, I became international master a woman, but there is another title. I became international master men's title. I got a men's title, which is uh, for me, it's nearly like a woman grandmaster. And I got two grandmasters norm as well in women's competition. So I think my chess actually after that became much better than before. Arena, I've never had a guest on the show like you before. You're quite an extraordinary human being, and it's amazing to interview someone who survived Chernobyl and the Maccabea Bridge disaster and the Australian migration process. Thank you so much for telling your story on the Thank program. You. Thank you. 
You've been listening to a podcast of Conversations with Richard Feidler. For more Conversations interviews, please go to the website abc.net.au slash conversations.